0: Well, while living in New York City in the notorious neighborhood known as Hell's Kitchen, the attorney, Matthew Murdoch, made a split-second decision that would change his life forever. A truck loaded heavy was uh, losing control and heading towards a pedestrian. And in that moment, Murdoch makes his decision to run into the road and push the pedestrian aside, thus saving his life. But in so doing, the truck spilt some of its cargo, uh, a chemical that was radioactive, landed on Matt's face, leaving him permanently blind. But this mysterious substance, which is never identified, while it robbed him of his sight, it gave him superhuman abilities in all of his other senses. And so, by day, he functions as a, an attorney, um, a crime fighter by day, uh, ethically upright. But... At night he puts on his superhero costume and is engaged in ethically flexible vigilante crime fighting known as the superhero Daredevil. Daredevil is the only blind uh, superhero in the Marvel Universe. Uh, He is a flawed and fascinating character according to Stephen DeKnight who is the creator of the TV version. And DeNight says this, he describes the superhero as, he's not super strong, he's not invulnerable. In every aspect, he's a man that's just pushed himself to the limits. And on the character's gray morals and unethical dealings at night, he's a lawyer by day and he's taken his oath, but every night he breaks that oath and goes out and does very violent things. And I really like the flawed heroes, the human heroes, says DeNight. The character's Catholicism plays a large part in the series and tonight calls him the most religious character in the Marvel Universe. Well, tonight we see another superhero who is flawed and fascinating. He is one who at this stage in his life is also blind. And yet his um, uh, unethical behavior and uh, gray morals throughout his life lead to another morally ambivalent moment in his death. Uh, He's blinded not because of his heroics, but because of his folly. And so this is what we're going to look at tonight in Judges chapter 16 in Samson's swan song, as we will see that justice indeed can be blind. Last time we saw in Judges 16, the days that the judges ruled Israel, Samson uh, had this invincible strength that he got whenever the Holy Spirit would rush upon him and empower him to do some sort of feat. And Samson was called by God before he was even born to be a Nazarite. Uh, Somebody who was set aside for God's special work. He was not allowed to touch anything unclean, eat any unclean um, food. He was not allowed to touch a corpse or even be near a dead person. And he was not allowed to cut his hair or drink strong drink. And throughout his life, we see him ignore those parameters, those rules that God um, set for him, until right at the end, the only thing he hasn't broken of his vow is his long hair, and uh, he has a weakness. Uh, a sweet tooth for the honeys and he ends up with Delilah who lulls him to sleep and uh, gets the secret of his strength out of him which is to cut his hair and this is exactly what happens a guy comes in while he's sleeping shaves his head and the Philistines are upon you Samson they attack him they subdue him and to humiliate him uh, they put him uh, grinding the mill which is something that usually a donkey or an ox would do they say oh you're you're so strong I know what you can do you can Just walk around in a circle all day, every day, grinding our grain for us. And how did they get him to do this? They gouged his eyes out, blinding him. And uh, he was in the wrong. He was not a paragon of virtue. His sin made him stupid, as we saw. Delilah sold his secret. He had presumed on God's grace. It said that he didn't even know that the Lord had left him after he had broken all these aspects of his vow. And yet, that was his kryptonite, as it were. Um, so now we find ourselves in the darkest chapter of Samson's life, literally, um, living with the consequence of his choices. And from this, we're going to learn two lessons. We're going to learn two types of consequences that if you, if you understand the consequence of sin, it's going to help you in your own life resist temptation. Two devastating consequences of sin. The first is personal consequences and then public consequences. And everything that you do is going to be attached to a consequence. And it's either going to be personal or public or very often both. So we'll read the story as it unfolds and let's just remind ourselves um, in chapter 16 we ended in verse 21 and 22 it said and the Philistine seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles and he ground at the mill in the prison. And then it ends with this strange verse this little ray of hope but the hair of his head began to grow again After it had been shaved, Samson's sins finally caught up with him. We saw throughout his life he disobeys God. God wanted him to stand apart from the Philistines. God raised him up so that he would destroy the Philistines and that he would break their oppression, that he would drive them out of Israel, that they would be so um, afraid of him that they would leave the Israelites and let the Israelites go free. The Israelites had not even called for this deliverance. It's the first time the Israelites don't even bother to repent and cry out for deliverance, but God raises up this man. And Samson, however, goes on his own mission. He's supposed to be this one-man army against the Philistines, but he just wants to blend in. Um, he, 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 He does everything that he can to become like the Philistines. And so he succumbs to the wily Delilah, And against all reason, in a moment of devastating short-sightedness, he hands over the secret of his power. And do you think he was considering the consequences at that point? Absolutely not. That's the lesson we learned last time, is often sin blinds you. It makes you stupid. It makes you not able to think through what's going to happen. Like the bank robber I told you about that robbed the bank and went back to the same bank to open an account to put his savings in that he had just stolen from them and got arrested. It's like, what was he thinking? Well, he wasn't. And sometimes you make decisions about relationships or decisions at work or decisions with uh, alcohol and uh, drugs or whatever it is. And you drive yourself to a point where there's a consequence and you kind of want to say to that person, what were you thinking? And the answer is, usually, I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know how I thought everything was going to work out well when I was doing this stuff. And it's because sin makes you stupid. The best thing that you can do for yourself is to obey God, and that's going to keep you safe. And so he was not considering the consequences. Sinners seldom do. There may be some here tonight that are engaged in something and they're only thinking about the here and now and how it makes you feel right now and you're not considering what it's doing to you in the future. Sin is a viper in your heart. It is a natural-born killer. Your sin nature is your human tendency. After the fall, we were all born in sin. So you have a human tendency from the moment that you're born to do things that are self-destructive. This is why you have to teach a child not to stick their hand in the fire. You have to teach them not to swallow the TV remote. <laughs> you, know, you, you, you have to teach them to not poke the pit bull in the eyes. You know Everything that you do, you need to teach the child because as Proverbs says, folly is bound up in the heart of the child. And it is discipline that drives it far from you. You are not born thinking and reasoning rightly. You are born in sin. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So think about that. How, how, How many times have you heard in our world people say, Just follow your heart. Just follow your desires. The Bible says this is a compass that's next to a magnet. Your heart is off. Your heart is leading you astray. Do not follow your heart. Don't trust it. You need to trust God's word. So people wrongly think that God's laws are a burden, that that he's a cosmic killjoy. But no, God has laws because he knows what's best for us. And when we obey them, we stay where it's safe we see this go wrong in Samson's life because he just keeps disobeying God's law and God is being patient with him and yet at some, times, at some time God's patience then runs out and he hands him over to his consequences. And different people love getting away with all sorts of things, different attitudes and different behaviors and actions and they feed the insatiable appetite of whatever they, they crave and they have no concern for tomorrow. You know, um, Jordan Peterson often will refer to as an illustration of this exact concept that he sees as a major problem, especially in the lives of young men, but really in everybody. It's uh, the Homer Simpson principle. You know, in The Simpsons, you've got the Homer, and he's just, you know, eating all the donuts and drinking all the beer, and somebody says, don't you know what that, that's going to do to you? And he says, oh, that's tomorrow's, that's future Homer's problem, This is what he says. I don't envy that guy. You know, he's the guy that's going to have the hangover. He's the guy that's going to have the tummy ache, not me. And of course, you wake up the next day and future Homer is you, right? And you see people like this. They're doing things and you're like, don't you understand what you're doing to your body, to your relationships, to your mind, to your soul? Oh, that's future me's problem. Today, I feel great. And so they call this freedom. But sin is a liar. It's a false advertiser. It is the bait that always has a hook. So can you imagine the trauma of Samson for that fleeting moment of kind of getting Delilah off his back and with her nagging, for that he now has this consequence for the rest of his life, a lifetime of darkness and humiliation. No sooner did he close his eyes, being lulled to sleep, that he awakened and opened his eyes for the last time to see the Philistines upon him. And he went at them thinking he was invincible for he did not know that the Lord had left him. And so they gouged out his eyes. It's a word in Hebrew that means to poke at repeatedly. They stabbed his eyes over and over with a knife until they were unusable for the rest of his life. Can you imagine that? That is not something he was thinking about when he decided to give away the strength that God had given him. So trust me when I say that the consequences of your sin will not come gently it's not like the Philistines put him under anesthetic and did a surgery to gently remove his eyes no they stabbed him with an ice pick or something that's how the consequences come into your life And and the sad thing is that often people will then say why is God doing this to me? why is God letting this happen? when actually this is a direct result personal consequence of decisions you made Thomas Watson, a Puritan, says in his book, The Mischief of Sin, Sin first tempts, and then it damns. It is first a fox, and then a lion. Sin does to a man what Yael did to Sisera. She gave him milk, but then she brought him low. Sin's, sin's last act is always tragic. The Bible says it this way, Proverbs eleven three: The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Proverbs 11.5 The righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight, but the wicked falls by his own wickedness. Proverbs 11.21 Be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. Those are three verses just in Proverbs 11. Verse 3, verse 5, verse 21. The evil person will not go unpunished. Consequences and sin are Siamese twins. You can't invite the one over without the other one. They're joined at the hip. When you have sin in your life, you have consequence in your life. It's just a matter of time. Proverbs 6, verse 27. I quote this often in the book of Judges. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? Proverbs 6 is warning us. You can't dabble with sin and hope that there's no consequence. And yet people refuse to take responsibility for their own actions. They, they steal, they whatever, do drugs, they end up in jail, and they say, why did God let this happen to me? You know, husband doesn't act respectable, and he wonders why his wife doesn't respect him. And some typical consequences of sin include shame, regret, economic hardship, people lose money, emotional scars, jail time, hospital time, AIDS, Broken relationships, unwanted pregnancies, divorce, and even death. And so when the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles, he ground the mill in prison. Can you think of how humiliating this was for him? This is the man who in his great strength used donkey's jawbone to kill a thousand of these people to destroy their grain reserves with the foxes, remember that, to carry away the gates of Gaza, and now he is in Gaza, milling their grain, doing the work of a donkey. A complete reversal of his high points. The searing pain of sin's hook can last a lot longer than the fleeting taste of the bait. So this is the takeaway from this personal consequence. I said this morning, I'll I'll say it again, this is, to me personally, in my walk with the Lord... This lesson has been the most helpful as I've tried to be more like Christ, as I've tried to identify sin in my life and overcome that sin. Sometimes, you know, there's certain sins it's just hard to get rid of. You can't just flip a switch. What do you do? How do you get rid of those sins? How do you overcome them? One of the most helpful lessons in my personal walk was being taught to take a moment in your quiet time when you're confessing your sins and just pause and visualize the consequences. Just let the consequences play in your mind for a while. Whatever it is. You just think about what could go wrong. How bad this could get. What the result of the sin could lead to. Because no one thinks about that in the moment. You know, the fish is never looking at the little bait there and thinking, I wonder what's going to happen if I just just sink my lips right into that thing. I wonder if there's a hook in there that's going to pull me out and how they're going to flay me and rip my bones out and sear me and eat me. No, all the fish is thinking, mmm, shrimp, ow, you know. And that's what sinners are like. Sinners don't stop. We don't stop and think, here's this temptation, let me think of the hook for a moment. Let me think of what that hook is going to feel like. What that hook is going to do to me. Where it's going to take me. How I'm going to end up. You start thinking about that and it becomes a lot easier to say no to the sin. Thankfully, I was raised in a home where my parents taught me consequences. And a friend of mine was once caught shoplifting. It's just like a candy or something, you know, less than a dollar worth. And got away with it. And it came out, and my parents kind of told me, he's lucky that that happened, but you know what's going to happen when you do it, of course, because you're clumsy. Um, you're going to steal this thing. It's going to fall out of your pocket. Someone's going to see it. You're going to get caught. They're going to take a photograph of you. They're going to put you, because in South Africa, they have like photographs of people at shoplift on the, on the door as you're coming into the store. <laughs> and um, they're going to put your face there, and everyone's going to know that you're the shoplifter. And that used to petrify me. It doesn't matter how. No one's looking. You know, in those days, they didn't have cameras everywhere. It's like, no one's looking. I could easily just steal this. But I just knew I'm going to get caught. I don't know why I knew that. I was clumsy. I did get caught a lot doing stuff. But that was good. I remember once I thought I was going to get away with something. So I had some, I was young. I was very little. My parents left me home alone. And as they pulled out, I decided to do something I wanted to do that they would never let me do. And I I had, this is very embarrassing, I had some love letters that a girl had written me that I was embarrassed about. And I didn't want to throw them away in case someone found them. And so I wanted to burn them. So that's exactly what I did. I got a little, you know, fire lighter, gasoline, and I had a little pot, and I went out in the back when my parents were gone, and I started this fire. And right then, they had forgotten something and turned around and came back. And so they pull up to me, and they see this fire, and they're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, now I have to tell them. I'm burning love letters, which is very embarrassing, more embarrassing than anything else. And I, I don't even think they punished me for that because they saw how mortified I was. But I just learned, you can't get away with anything. Your sin finds you out. You think no one else is, is watching. You think that they're not there, but they are. And that's what I love about the society today, that there are cameras everywhere and people filming something. You just have to live your life as if everything you do is being filmed. Because in a very real sense it is, isn't it? God knows everything that you do. It is always public. And what you can do is, you visualize the consequences and you see the sin coming and you turn away from it, you beg God for a way out of the temptation. And the Bible promises that He will give you a way out. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God is faithful He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. That's the promise. So if you find yourself in that place, even tonight, there's hope for you. You can always turn your back on sin. I, I, I always say this. There's only one good thing about sin. And that is that you can repent of it. It's not a disease. If you have a disease, sometimes you're just stuck with the disease. You have a condition. You're just stuck with it. You can't do anything about it. But that's not what sin is. Sin is a choice. And you can always repent of sin. No matter how deep you are in it. Repentance calls back the favor of God. And we see this hopeful here in chapter 16, verse 22. The hair of his head began to grow after it had been shaved. And that's just the narrator leaving us with a little bit of hope here. So now in the depths of his personal consequence, there's a hope that God will be with him again. So this brings us to our second point, the public consequences. So personal consequences are the ones we're most familiar with. It's the stuff that goes wrong in your life because of decisions you make. But there's another type of consequence we see here, the public consequences. Look at verse 23. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to who? To Dagon their God and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. And so they called Samson out of prison and he entertained them. And they made him stand between the pillars. This is not just personal consequence. this is a public consequence. The humiliation here is not just the guilt and the shame and the embarrassment that he feels in private for what he's done. This is made a public spectacle now. For a believer, there is something worse than the feeling of shame and regret of your sin privately. And that is that you are also besmirching the name of your Savior. That you are dragging the name of Christ through the mud in front of a watching world that are looking for reasons to not believe. And we proclaim a Savior who is so powerful that He releases us from the power of sin and then we sin publicly And we are proclaiming publicly, Jesus is not powerful enough to help me overcome the sin that you're stuck in. I'm stuck in it too. And so you've heard people say, you see, those Christians, are all hypocrites. Whenever there's a scandal that comes out or some public figure who's a Christian is caught in some sin, you see all those Christians, they're just hypocrites. You're giving them an excuse not to believe in the Powerful savior that can overcome sin because we act like slaves to the very sin we say he's freed us from. So, Samson's sin resulted in the Philistines praising Dagon. So, Samson is born to bring glory to Yahweh, and instead, he's giving glory to Dagon because of his sin. And they're saying Dagon's the powerful God. Now, remember, Dagon is the God, he's a fish god. So, he's got the body of a man, and he has the head of a fish. Dag in Hebrew means fish. It's the word that's swallowed Jonah. Big Dag. And this is Dagon. This is the god, the fish god. Who wants to worship a fish god? Well, the Philistines, apparently. Who's more powerful, Yahweh or Dagon? In this moment, it's not very clear that Yahweh's more powerful. Because he was able to give this man all the strength, but he apparently... This man wasn't able to keep it. Dagon delivered him, they say. Dagon gave this man to us. Our God, verse 24 says, has given our enemy into our hand. The ravager of our country has killed so many of us. Now look at him, so call him out here. And they have this huge feast. You find out that there's 3,000 people there. They're having this massive sacrifice to Dagon because of Samson. What a sad sight when a Christian turncoat crosses the floor and instead of radiating God's glory, he steals it and sells it to Satan for the price of some fleeting pleasure. Charles Spurgeon says, My brethren, is there one among you who this day wish to be backsliders? Is there one of you who, like Samson, desires to have his eyes put out and made to grind in the mill? And if not, of course, he says, look well to your consecration, your holiness. Look well to your consecration. See that it is sincere. See that you mean it. And then look up to the Holy Spirit and beg of Him to give you daily grace. For as day by day the manna fell, so must you receive daily food from on high. That's the only way you get through life is one day at a time. Don't think about what it's going to be like in the future and am I going to be able to stay faithful to God in the future. That's what we're just saying about. He will hold you fast. Your job is simply to give yourself over to Him day by day and ask for grace. Not once. I prayed the prayer once and now I can carry on living my life every day. And so it's only by God's daily grace working in you that you can live a worthwhile life. And Samson knows this. Verse 26, Samson says to the young man who held him by the hand. This is the little slave boy or whatever that brings Samson out there to be, you know, he's going to entertain them. They're just going to look at him and laugh at him. Here's this guy with no eyes that was so powerful. And he says to this little boy, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. Reasonable request. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. These are the people that paid for or financed Delilah, you know. And on the roof there were about three thousand men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. So this is the scene. It's kind of a some sort of structure with a gallery, um, maybe looking down on an atrium, and you've got these main pillar supports and then the minor supports around. Whatever it is. You can go and Google and look at all the different ways people would have thought this could have been. But there's a load-bearing structure right in the middle with these two pillars right next to each other. And he's kind of wedged in between them. And, and that's the scene. And on the roof in the gallery that's being held by this, there's 3,000 Philistines. And what's the most he's, he's killed so far in one day? 1,000 with his jawbone. Remember, the heaps upon the heaps. Well, verse 28, Samson called to the Lord. And what's interesting here is between the narrator and Samson, all the names for God are used. Samson called to Yahweh and said, Adonai Yahweh, please remember me. Please strengthen me. Only this once, O Elohim, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. This is a genuine heartfelt plea. This is the first time we see Samson humbled himself to this point. Now he was humbled one other time. Remember when that was? When after he killed a thousand people, he was what? He was thirsty and he needed water. But the way he asked for it left a little to be desired, didn't it? Oh, what do you? You give me all the strength and now you're going to leave me here to die with no water? I mean, that's one way to pray. The Israelites did that too. But here we see him genuinely humbled. He's not presuming on God's grace here. He doesn't think he has the strength. He's asking God to give him that strength. He doesn't see himself as invincible. He doesn't see himself as untouchable. He sees himself as somebody who needs grace. Proverbs 15:33 The fear of Yahweh is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. What comes before a fall Pride comes before a fall. What comes before honor? Humility. This is the world we live in. This is God's world. He exalts the humble, and he humbles the exalted. And so it's by faith that he cries out. So think about this. This is think about what he, what he must have been meditating on since this has happened. He's in. He's blind. He's captured. He's all alone. He's isolated. He always wants to blend in with the Philistines, but now he's permanently isolated from everyone. He's in prison. He knows that God exists. He knows what he's been called to do. God raised him up to be a deliverer of the Israelites, an enemy to the Philistines. He has turned his back on that mission time and time again, trying to blend in. And here he is, without his power. But you know what he is doing? He's keeping his Nazarite vow. I mean, I doubt they're serving him wine and strong drink in prison. He's not killing people. He's not around any dead bodies. You know, he's not cutting his hair. And he's consecrated. He's set aside. He's not doing anything he shouldn't be doing. And he's humble. And in faith, he cries out to this God that he knows is real and exists and is able to give him power And he asks for it one last time. Yahweh Adonai, he calls him. The Lord Yahweh. And so God gives him this power for this mission to destroy the Philistines. Now, every other time he gets this power, because remember, I... I don't want you to think of Samson as somebody who's just constantly super, super strong. Like every time he picks up everything, it crushes. He's like, you know, opens a door and the handle comes off. He's like, oh yeah, I'm super strong. He's just a normal guy, but when the spirit rushes upon him and supernaturally empowers him, he can do anything. That's why he lifts up the gates of Gaza straight out of the ground and they weigh like, you know, what a minivan weighs and then he hikes a marathon with it. Like it's completely beyond anything any human could ever do. This is the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that's what he's asking for. And every other time it's happened, it, it, the Spirit of God, he rushes upon Samson when Samson is provoked, when Samson is en, enraged, when Samson is in danger, when, when something happens in Samson's life that doesn't suit Samson, that's when he suddenly wants to kill Philistines. As soon as that calms down, he wants to go and kiss and make up. Shows up with a bouquet of flowers, a box of chocolates, and a little goat. Remember that? You know, for his... Oh, I know a I storm dolphin killed 30 of your guests, but hey, I'm back. Um, you know, or 30 people for your guests, and I just want to kiss and make up. Oh, you, you gave her away. I'm just going to destroy the grain. Oh, now you killed her. Now I'm going to kill a thousand of you. Now this happens, and it just keeps elevating. It's always, it's always when it suits him. But now, for the first time, there's nothing provoking this. This is doing God's will. This is what you called me to do. You called me to kill Philistines. I'm ready. I don't want to blend in. I don't want to kiss and make up. I don't want to be one of them. I want to kill them. I want to kill as many of them as possible. And you're thinking, is this a good model? No, no. This is a very, very specific moment in history. Remember, you can't read the book of Judges looking for examples, really, of anything except for faith. And God called Samson to kill Philistines. You know why? Because the Israelites in wartime should have driven the Philistines out. This was promised land. This was the Israelites' land that they had allowed the Philistines to occupy and God wanted them to chase them out and they wouldn't. And it's the same with Samson. Samson should have been spending 20 years just chasing them out, but instead he here and there does it when it suits him. And now he wants to wipe out all of the lords. all of the government is there. This would be like somebody trying to attack the United States at the, the State of the Union. So you know that they have a, I'm sure you know this, a designated survivor is what they call it, where one person who's in the chain of succession for presidency gets removed and doesn't get to go to the State of the Union just in case Samson happens. They must have read Judges 16 and be like, in case something happens where the whole building falls down and kills the president, the vice president, the speaker of the house, going all the way down the chain of command through everybody, we need somebody like the, I don't know, the agriculture dude, or whatever, and he suddenly becomes president. Isn't there like a TV series about that? With, isn't Jack Bauer in it? Yeah? What's his name? Kiefer Sutherland? Yeah, that's who you would want to be your designated survivor, you know? Jack Bauer. But anyway, I digress. Um, that's what's happening here. All the lords of the Philistines, so the whole government is gathered. This is the most strategic time they could ever be wiped out, and so he cries out to God, and God answers him. After all this time, I mean, he has married Philistines and dated them and hired them and partied with them, but now he wants to kill them, and frankly, it's about time. So verse 29, Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other, and Samson said, let me die with the Philistines, and he bowed with all of his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord's. And upon all the people who were in it, everybody on the roof dies, everybody under the roof dies. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Finally, Samson finds the end of himself. He stops rebelling against God. He humbles himself. He places his faith in God. He becomes a faithful and obedient servant even though it means he's going to have to give up his life. Instead of following his own selfish desires, he seeks God's glory in one last desperate act against God's enemies. He wipes out the worship of Dagon with a single stroke. And so this is what we read about him in Hebrews eleven, thirty-two. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, And others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. Samson is written all over the hall of faith. He stopped the mouths of lions. Remember that when that lion showed up and he killed it? He's enforced justice, he's conquered kingdoms, he's obtained promises, he escaped the edge of the sword many times, he was made strong out of weakness. He becomes mighty in war, and he endured chains and imprisonment. And so these are the words that the Samson saga concludes with. Verse 31, then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. And he had judged Israel 20 years. And remember, we've seen this pattern in Judges that when, when you get to be buried with your people, that's a sign of an accomplished mission. And so I urge you to learn from his life. Learn about when things are going well, God is being patient with you. But you need to meditate on the consequences and make sure that you don't fall into the personal consequences of sin and also the public shame that comes to our Savior because of the disgrace of being caught in sin. Call out to Him for forgiveness. And he'll give you that forgiveness because of the life of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was put to shame because of us. He was publicly humiliated and flogged and falsely tried and crucified where he suffered and carried the sin of the world, your sin and my sin, so that when you turn your back on it, it can be paid for. And all of his infinite righteousness would cover all the sin in the world of everybody. If everybody in the whole world right now repented of all of their sin, Christ's sacrifice was enough to cover it all. And the only people that don't have their sins covered are those people who refuse to humble themselves and cry out for a savior. And when you sin, expect personal consequences and public reproach in Christ's name. But when you repent, you need to expect grace and forgiveness because of Christ's blood. So let this message of Samson remind you of just one thing. Take this one thing away. Salvation, forgiveness, mercy, deliverance is just one desperate cry away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this reminder of Samson's life, and it really is a tragedy. Sinful decisions always lead leave us in tragedy but we do thank you that we can turn to you and cry out in desperation knowing that you will most certainly answer us you've given us that promise through the blood of christ we love you lord jesus we thank you for living and dying for us we pray that you would help us to be salt and light in this world for your glory amen